Are you an EMDR therapist and parent who wants to make more money, have more time with your family, and get better results with your clients? Welcome to the Future Template Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Carolyn Solo, LCSW, EMDR consultant, business coach, and mom of three kids under seven. I realized that the grind of weekly sessions was taking a massive toll on my ability to be the kind of parent and therapist I wanted to be. So I dove headfirst into learning about intensives. I read all the books and articles and did all the trainings. Now I've transformed my schedule, my income, and my clinical outcomes by offering intensive EMDR in my practice. I want to teach you how to do this too, so you can build a practice you love and spend more quality time with your family. Let's create the future template for your life as a parent and as a therapist. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode nine of the Future Template Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Carolyn Solo, LCSW, EMDR consultant, and mom of three daughters. Today's episode is the first of a three-episode series focusing on how the eight phases of EMDR can be adapted for the intensive EMDR model. So today's episode is going to focus on phases one and two. So phase one, history taking and treatment planning, and phase two, resourcing and preparation. And what I'm going to talk about first before I get into that is how I was trained during my basic training to think about phases one and two, and why intensives helped me think about it a little bit differently, um, particularly when it comes to thinking about dissociation. So first, I'm going to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk in more detail about what my phases one and two actually look like in an intensive. So let's get started. When we learn about phases one and two in basic training, when we learn about them in standard protocol, we think of phases one and two as preparation. What we're doing during this period, during the preparation phase, is ensuring that we're really able to conceptualize our clients' concerns and understand their treatment history, their trauma history, their personal history. And a big part of that is that we want to be sure we are confident that we can proceed with trauma processing safely and effectively. Something that I know I encountered in my basic training, and I know is covered in most basic trainings, is um, lots and lots of talk about how important it was to take enough time with preparation, particularly for safety reasons. We learned a lot about, or should I say maybe that we were kind of scared away from, clients with dissociation. And we talked a lot about how EMDR could be potentially harmful for dissociative clients. While there's certainly some need for caution, absolutely, my experience has been that if you're being sensitive and attuned and relational with the client sitting in front of you, and you're listening to your clinical intuition, you're very rarely going to be in a situation in which you're causing significant harm. And even if you miss an early sign that your client may be dissociative, and even if they start to dissociate a bit during reprocessing, you can bring them back. Um, I have a lot of professional experience and a lot of training with dissociation at this point, And so I have a big arsenal of skills and tools for managing dissociation with clients um, in EMDR sessions. And if you'd like to learn more about that, please reach out to me. That's one of the things I include in my coaching package is learning all about that. Um, And I also plan on talking more about dissociation in intensives in a lot more detail in the future. So look out for those episodes. And I am not trying to dismiss the significance of dissociation at all. And I'm not trying to urge you to ignore signs of it. What I'm trying to say is that I don't want the fear of a client dissociating, potentially dissociating, to keep you from attempting reprocessing, to keep you in phases one and two forever. Um, And in fact, doing intensives has given me so much more confidence with moving into reprocessing more quickly. 
I feel like before I was doing intensives, I could spend like months and months resourcing and history taking and doing geneograms and learning grounding skills and, and on and on and on. And not that any of it's bad, but I think the reason I was doing it was more out of fear that I wouldn't know how to manage phase four, that something would come up during phase four that I couldn't handle. And honestly, doing intensives made me forge ahead and face that fear. Because frankly, if someone comes to me for an intensive, they don't really want to spend 12 hours doing resourcing, (laughs) which is not to say that that can't happen. And I think creative resourcing is incredibly valuable. But I do think that (laughs) all the parts of EMDR are powerful and we shouldn't be limiting ourselves out of fear of potentially causing harm. So again, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm being cavalier about dissociation. I do not take it lightly at all. But I also think that there's a really good chance that someone's going to dissociate in your office, whether you know it or not. (laughs) And that should not be something that keeps you from ever trying to move into phase four. So with that being said, I'm going to move on to what phase one looks like for me in an intensive. So we see, we think of phase one as history taking and treatment planning. So in my intensive model, what I do first is I meet with a prospective client for a 30 minute free consult. I know there are people who no longer do the free consults, and that's totally fine that they they don't give away their time for free, and I 100% respect that. I have not yet come up with a better way (laughs) to assess for an intensive, so I still do the 30-minute consult, but open to learning always. But as of now, I would say about half the time when clients come to me for a free consult, they um, know what an intensive is, and about half the time they don't. And some of the time, they don't even know what EMDR is. So depending on where they're at in that journey, um, and I've talked about this in an earlier episode, I talk about like, what is EMDR? What is an EMDR intensive? I only do intensives. If you don't want intensives, here's someone else I can (laughs) refer you to, right? So I do that first. And then I also use the time to assess their appropriateness for an intensive. Even if they've already said that's what they want, I want to make sure it's the right treatment approach for them. Although I think that for most people, it can be. And I try to get a sense of their goals, like what they think an intensive is going to do for them. And I also do my best to help them get a sense of what can actually be accomplished in the format that I use, which is usually this 90-minute intake followed by three four-hour intensive sessions. And the four hours are really a five-hour block split up as two hours of work, one hour break, one hour lunch break, two hours of work. So I try to give them a sense of what is realistic in that time frame given presenting issues they're coming in with and what their goals are. I also stress the importance of having a weekly therapist. I know some intensive therapists who will not work with someone who doesn't have a weekly therapist. I don't say that unless, of course, it's someone who um, struggles with dissociation, because I really want to make sure that that person has a primary therapist that I can connect with and stay in touch with throughout the process. That's very important. But other than that, you know, I'm not I don't require a weekly therapist. But I also share about pricing during this half hour consult and I answer any other questions they have. Some things I rule out for mostly there aren't that many things I do rule out for. Like if it's someone whose presenting issue is like way outside of what I normally work with, I might refer that person out. Um, Like I know some people who have very, very specific niches and they do intensives and that might be a perfect fit for somebody else. Like I work a lot with the postpartum and the perinatal population, but I've also worked with first responders. I've also worked with people with health anxiety. I've also worked with people who are going through like a breakup. So it's not just the postpartum and perinatal stuff, 
But like, if I know someone who, you know, like something I don't do a ton with is phobias. And I know someone who is an amazing clinician who does um, intensives for, for people with phobias. And I'll often refer them to that clinician. So that's one thing I rule out for is just kind of area of expertise. And then of course, again, talking about dissociation, someone who is very, very dissociative, who does not also have other supports for treatment, I would not want to bring them in for an intensive. If they're dissociative, significantly dissociative, they need to have a primary therapist if we're going to do an intensive. And so if they're just very dissociative, I'm not just going to outwardly say no, I'm just going to be more careful with reprocessing. We might end up focusing much more on parts work instead of phase four. And I'm not going to have the same kinds of goals for what I think we can accomplish during the intensive. But I still think working in that format is amazing for people who are very dissociative. That level of depth and really dropping into the work with that amount of time given to it is incredible, I think, actually. And I've had great experiences doing that with dissociative clients. Um, And I absolutely will require them to have a primary therapist. And I will require that I have a release of information so I can be in touch with the therapist before the intensive. So we can talk about like any concerns they have, how I operate, you know, are there any adjustments we should make? And then I'll actually tell the client that I'm going to reach out to the therapist between each of the four hour days just to check in as well. And we'll stay in touch throughout the process and then after as well. Just generally to assess for dissociation, I use the DES2, the Dissociative Experiences Scale, version two. Um, It's not as long as some of the other questionnaires. And, you know, if you ask a couple of questions, you can usually get a sense of if there are any red flags for dissociation. I don't like go through it question by question. I kind of weave it into the conversation. You know, if there's no dissociation red flags at all, I might not go into a lot of detail, but I usually at least ask one or two questions from the DES too for everyone. And again, like I said, dissociation is not an automatic rule out. It's just something that alerts us that we need to, you know, take certain kinds of precautions, be very aware of what else might be going on. So once we've done that 30 minute consultation, done that, if the client decides to proceed, I meet with them for a 90 minute initial intake. And this can be virtual. I do all of my four hour sessions in person. Although I do know some people who um, do virtual intensives, that is something maybe someday I'll get to. But for now, it just feels really, really exhausting to me to sit in front of a screen doing this kind of deep work for that long. But it's definitely people do it. But the 90-minute intake, I'm fine with that being virtual. Um, So during this 90-minute intake, we discuss goals for treatment um, in a little bit more detail than just the initial consult. And I provide more information about EMDR and certainly other additional questions they have. I also give them a workbook that has several questionnaires in it um, that gives me a lot of information uh, about their history, about attachment stuff, about potential resources we could use, about developmental history, about negative cognitions that they tend to see coming up over and over again in their lives. And I ask them to complete this 24 hours before our first four-hour intensive session. And when I'm sort of tailoring the workbook to the individual client's needs before I send it to them, like after the 90-minute intake, um, I try to tailor the sort of the questions about resourcing to the kinds of presenting issues they have. So for example, if the client has identified coming in with issues around postpartum depression, I will ask them to try to think in advance in the workbook about 
a few moments in which they felt like most positive or successful as a parent. Because those are some things we might really need to have them connect with when they're feeling, when they're really in, you know, that space of feeling like they're feeling as a mom, like they're not the parent that their baby needs, all those things. I also will often have them identify like a wise parenting figure, somebody that they really feel like they maybe not want to model their parenting after, but they feel like, you know, that's, and it might not necessarily be their parent. Often it's not. It could be a grandparent or a caregiver. And also like a a figure who would say sort of like nice things about how they've parented, how, the, how my client is parenting. I'm not exactly sure how to put that into good words, but like, you know, if they're really struggling, I say like, you know, what might your grandmother say about how you are connecting with your baby right now or something like that. So the other thing about the workbook is that it also has some questionnaires that helps them narrow their treatment goals. So we can use it as like an initial treatment planning guide. So that's the 90 minute uh, session and the, uh, the workbook. And when they come in for their first four hour session, they've done the workbook, I've reviewed it, we talked through the workbook a little bit. And so the first one to two hours, that first half of the day before the first lunch break, tends to focus on identifying the primary treatment focus. I usually use RTEP, the recent traumatic event protocol for structuring intensives, kind of like my version of RTEP. And the last episode, episode eight of the podcast talked all about RTEP. So if you want to know more about RTEP, go back and listen to that. And if you want to know even more, reach out to me because one of the things I will help you learn about in the coaching package that I offer is how to use RTEP, like very specifically in your intensives. And I have some resources that I would share with you for that. So part of RTEP involves running a mental movie of the traumatic episode and talking through it at what I call the 10,000 foot view. So like not five hours. Remember, this is not, (laughs) you know, exposure therapy where like, tell me every single detail. But I'll have them talk through it at the 10,000 foot view from the start of the episode up to the present day. And I say like, let's make it five to 10 minutes max. And once they've run the mental movie and they're they're talking through it, um, I usually do this with BLS, either eye movements or tappers. So they're like talking through it while they're doing that. And it turns out that there's research that shows that even that, just like talking through the mental movie with the with BLS, starts to um, start some of the processing and starts to kind of help them organize a little bit. And once they've done that, they sort of scan the whole movie and list the major hotspots. And this becomes the target list. Uh, another reason I like to do this, well, it just makes sense in terms of the flow of RTEP, but something else that's happening here is we're also trying out different versions of BLS. So they get the chance to try the tappers, they get the chance to try the light bar, they get the chance to see if like they like my hand better, they like self-tapping. Um, so they can get kind of oriented to the different options. And of course, they can use any, any option they want at any time. Like one thing we often will do, and I'll talk about this in the next episode when I talk about phases three and four, is sometimes when we're stuck, we'll switch back and forth between forms of BLS. If a float back feels particularly applicable, depending on the traumatic episode we're focusing on, we might complete a float back. We don't always because of how RTEP works. You don't necessarily need the float back. But sometimes also during desensitization, there might be a time where it feels relevant to float back a little bit. Like, do you remember other times when you learned this or when you felt this, you know, kind of an informal flow back to see if there's anything else back there that we need to identify? But I don't necessarily do a float back every single time in this phase one part. So that's kind of my phase one. Um, phase two, resourcing. 
So when the client comes in for that first four-hour intensive day, we're going to review the workbook together. And part of the workbook um, is a series of questions that help me and the client identify these positive supportive resources, right? Maybe safe, calm place, maybe a container. And again, I don't always use all of these with anyone. I don't think you have to use safe place. I don't think you have to use container. I think you use the ones that work well for the person. Um, we might install a nurturer, a protector, a wise figure, positive memories that are relevant to their particular presenting issue. Um, so we we install the resources that we've decided are, I'll choose like two or three from the list that they've come up with to do at the beginning. And then later on, as we're continuing with processing, there might be a need for additional resources. And then because of the work they've done in the workbook, we already have kind of like a reference guide that we can use um, if we need to pull in something else. But to start with, I'll pick two or three. And so once they've installed the resources, the resource, we'll do this with each resource, I'll have them connect with a mildly distressing recent event, not ideally not something connected to the traumatic episode, although that's not always possible, but something on like a two to three on the sub scale, sort of connect with that and then use the resource to reground. And if they're able to do this successfully with a couple of the resources, okay, I feel like we can go ahead with processing. And like I said, I try to help the client identify resources that feel relevant to their treatment goals. Um, so I had a client they were doing an intensive who was a first responder and had some really, really bad experiences at work, which you can probably imagine. And they were struggling with overwhelm. They were experiencing PTSD. They were thinking of taking time away from their job. And that was kind of what they were presenting to my office to work on for the intensive. And so as part of the resourcing process, I had them come up with a couple of moments when they felt particularly competent and successful at their job. And we installed those. So you can kind of see how You can tailor the resourcing process to the particular um, theme of the intensive. Another example, you know, a mom that's feeling a lot of guilt about not being able to breastfeed. I might have her come up with a couple times where she felt really connected to her baby. Like she was really doing a great job of meeting her baby's needs. Right. And we would install that resource. So in all resourcing and treatment planning usually takes like I said, one to two hours. Sometimes it'll take that whole two hour chunk before our first break. Sometimes it won't. If we have some time before that first break, we might even start with the first target that we identified from the mental movie in Arta. Um, And I probably wouldn't do that unless we had at least like 20 minutes before the break. If we have five minutes, we'll just end early and come back a little early. But the cool thing about the intensive is that I think you feel that there is this focus, this emphasis is kind of driving you to keep moving forward with the processing because you know that there's this defined amount of time that you're going to be working together. So I actually really like that. Like, I think some people might find that I could imagine that some people might think that feels like a lot of pressure, but I just kind of feel like it keeps me kind of goal oriented. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not going to just be like, oh, let's just keep resourcing because I don't want to do anything else before our lunch break. No, I'm going to be like, okay, we've got 20 minutes. Let's start and see where we can get. And of course, you know, you have that freedom when you're designing this model yourself. You do it in a way that feels in alignment with your, the pacing that you like to work at with your clinical intuition. There's no right or wrong way to do it. It's what feels good to you. So yeah, so next episode, I'm going to give you the full rundown on phases three and four, like starting with that first target. What does that look like? So yeah, that was a little bit about how I think of, start thinking about the first 
about the eight phases of EMDR and when you're applying it to an intensive model. And I talked a bunch about um, how to think about intensives and dissociation and preparation and how to use phases one and two kind of efficiently when you are uh, doing an intensive and that like with the intensive model, you've got to think about all the phases a little bit differently. And then I talked in more detail about what those actually actually look like. So um, yeah, I'm excited to have you join me next week for hearing about assessment and desensitization and reprocessing phases three and four. If you're interested in working with me, if some of the stuff today has piqued your interest, because all of this stuff that I have been talking about, I will give you so much more detail and a whole bunch of tools. You'll get an entire package, a whole Google Drive full of tools to use, which is included in the coaching package with me to learn about how to get your intensive practice up and running. And you'll do it in one day. We'll meet for five hours and you'll have everything and you'll be ready to go. And you'll make back your investment on your first intensive. Like the investment you make in the coaching package with me, when you book that first intensive with a client, you'll have made it back. And remember, if you're working towards certification in EMDR, you can count the hours that I work with you, this coaching package, towards those requirements. I can sign off on them as a consultant. And I also offer one-off consultation for certification, if that's of interest to you. Check out my website, www.futuretemplateparent.com parent.com, for more details on how to work with me. I'm excited to have you join me for the next episode. We're talking about phases three and four and some considerations for how to adapt those phases to the intensive model. So lots of fun and juicy stuff to talk about. So I hope you'll listen. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Future Template Parent Podcast. I hope you've learned something that can help you move from feeling overwhelmed to energized about your practice and your personal life. You don't have to choose one over the other. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and please share it with another EMDR therapist who would benefit from hearing this episode. Each review helps us get the message out about how offering EMDR intensives can liberate your practice. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app so you don't miss a single episode. See you next week.